From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you... The fintech industry is firing on all cylinders as big bank profits fall. We look at why investing is booming despite the pandemic. And Ant Financial's Choir of Ants promote their new blockchain brand. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 449 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, the one and only Sarah Kachansky. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am well, thank you, Simon. Very well. How are you? Yeah, really well. A little bit warm. The UK has, has decided now is the time to have a heat wave whilst we're inside recording a podcast, but hoping to get out into it and enjoying it and definitely not complaining. We cannot do that, can we? <laughs> It's only today and tomorrow, I think. So I think by the weekend, things will be, normal status will be resumed. And we hope there's good weather wherever you are listening to this and or at least uh, you're enjoying the podcast and you want to get into some fintech news. And uh, we are joined by some fantastic guests uh, making welcome returns. We have Charlotte Crosswell, who's the CEO at Innovate Finance. Charlotte, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Feels like a long time yes. since I last saw you on screen or in person. But anyway, it we'll, uh, won't be too long, hopefully, before we get together. Yeah, it's been too long. Really good to have you back. I, I know you were on the show not too long ago, but um, good good to have you back with us and uh, good to see you again. Um, and, and Victor Neberhoy, have I said your name right? That's correct. Yeah, that's very good. Oh, look at that. I'm feeling so much better about myself. Thank you, Victor. Your CMO and co-founder at Free Trade. How are you doing, Victor? Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me again. Excited to be back on the show. No, excited to have you guys with us. I think some very relevant content uh, later on in the show, especially when we get to the investment space. But uh, the first story this week, actually, we covered from AltFi, but uh, it was kind of everywhere, really. Uh, this is the fintech industry firing on all cylinders, despite VC investment in UK fintechs being down 39% during the recent period. So data from Innovate Finance reveals VC investment totaled $1.84 billion US dollars in the first six months of 2020, across 160 67 deals in UK fintech. This is a 39% drop compared to half one 2019 when 3 billion was invested in 263 startups. But the figures for the first six months represent an increase from the second half of 2019 uh, when funding actually only reached 1.5 billion. So half of the funding went to five companies. Uh, So these were Revolut, Checkout.com, Starling Bank, Onfido, and Thought Machine, all of whom went under some big ticket funding rounds during that period. Uh, a fifth of the funding went to companies receiving between five and 20 million US dollars. And in the period, 87 companies raised up to five million. So, uh, Charlotte, do you want to talk us through this one? Some, some interesting stats there across the piece. Simon, I'm very impressed by you knowing our stats probably better than I know them myself. So, uh, you know, congratulations on that. Um, uh, they are written down <laughs> for me. So, <laughs> but you looked, you, you, you delivered that seamlessly. Um, you know, and it's been really interesting. You know, when you put out you know, a press release, and obviously the team analyzes this data, you know, in huge detail, and it is significant, as you say, very widely picked up. And then since then, we you know, we've seen the headline of 39%. We also released more recently yeah, just before this uh, runway of cash as well of how many companies potentially will not have enough cash over the next six to nine months and then since the we put this press release out all we've seen is is another raise after another raise after another raise going into july so in some ways i always get slightly encouraged as i said to Revolut back at the beginning of the year when they did their raise you know slightly encouraged when i see some raises in july that it's giving us some positive news for the next uh, next half I would say you know, the statistics very much you um, are showing us where we're seeing the trends in the market. Yeah, and that's actually not just fintech; that's tech. It's other growth sectors as well. We're seeing big companies, you know, backed well by VCs, private equity, seeing follow-on rounds of them growing and expanding, and that's great. You know, fintech is is still able to attract you know, big sizes and growing their businesses. We're seeing smaller companies potentially going to struggle. You know, to to raise those smaller rounds, their first VC round, Series A, potentially that was coming from overseas, or it was relying on physical meetings, and perhaps those meetings haven't happened. Um, and it's very difficult, therefore, to see what the trend is. You know, H1, um, so Q1 was very much you know business almost as usual. You know, rounds getting closed, even going into Q2, those were conversations that had already started pre-lockdown. You know, meetings that had happened and they continued to close. Yeah, and one or two of them didn't close, and we've seen them take advantage of the future fund. Um, and now what we're going to see over the next two quarters is really the true impact. You know, are we going to see a slowing of investment, or are we going to see a pickup? 
Um, I think there is a new normal coming around, whatever new normal is. And hopefully, you know, people will get used to investing by Zoom, by phone, without a meeting taking place. And that dry powder will come through. Let's definitely hope so, Charlotte. I mean, there was another good stat here that said um, 75% of smaller fintech firms are concerned about their next funding round. And Victor, we've actually seen an awful lot of people go the crowdfunding route. I mean, uh, Free Trade, you did some crowdfunding. Coconut have been crowdfunding. Uh, Climate Invest, there's, there's quite a few that have gone that route. Um, do you want to? Do you think that's uh, because of the funding environment, or is this just an extension of fintech already going the crowdfunding route? Well, I, I, I think, Simon, that that's a trend that's already started before the pandemic and, and the pandemic gave an opportunity maybe to a couple of businesses to sort of refine their plans and, and consider crowdfunding a little bit more. Um, I, you know, with free trade, you know, just to zoom out, the mission is to get everyone investing and early on we felt it would be insincere not to crowdfund, right? We want to cut in our, our customers, our users and make sure they, they benefit from our from, from our growth. But uh, I've definitely see, uh, seen an uptick in, in uh, other CMOs, businesses reaching out and asking about crowdfunding and exploring that route. Uh, there was a little bit of, you know, like uh, chatter conversations I had before this, but definitely more since the, um, since the whole pandemic began. Interesting trend. Sarah, as you sit back and look at this, what are your, what are your thoughts? Um, is this concerning, encouraging? What, what are your thoughts? To me, it is concerning that the smaller the smaller companies aren't aren't getting aren't getting what they need um, because we have a lot of the larger companies and that they're doing very well. And I, I have other thoughts that we haven't really talked about today, and perhaps we won't get to. But about like keeping pouring more and more money into the companies of this size. For you know, Revolut's just one example of the amount of money it's raised and the amount of money VC money it's sitting on. Does it need more? Should that money be going somewhere else? Should Revolut you know be thinking about doing? thinking about making an exit or thinking about some kind of you know uh, next step um I, I, you know I, I don't know the answer to that but it i do it does make me think well these larger companies are swallowing up more and more money go for larger and larger rounds than we've ever really seen before and that feels to me a little i know no, i know nothing's fair in love and investing but um it feels a little unfair to the smaller companies who might have just as good an idea um i'm pleased to see the resurgence of crowdfunding you know, as Victor mentioned, it had a real heyday for a while there, and then it just sort of dropped off and dropped away quietly. But you know, we we've seen quite a you know quite a few people have done very very well with it recently. I think we're going to get onto a, to a story later on, and I think crowdfunding is um, an option that you know smaller businesses can look to, particularly if they're just looking for that little bit amount to tide them over, perhaps until the situation changes or until people get used to the new normal. Um, but also, you know. It, it, as we said, everybody's really into investing right now on the retail side. Crowdfunding is a great way to get into retail investing, a particularly quite tangible way because you mm-hmm. see what you're investing in. If perhaps you don't know about stocks and shares and you're a bit concerned about them, if you go and invest in a company, you can at least see it. It's not necessarily any less risky or more riskier either, but I think it, people have a comfort blanket from that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the third thing is just oh, thank God there's money coming in. Some jobs are protected. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? This is, this is a sector that had the potential to be really badly hit by, you know, the economy falling off a cliff. And we haven't, I don't think, seen even the beginning of job losses in this country because furlough is still ongoing. But that those companies that have raised money, they have money to pay people and pay people for a little bit longer. And that's all to the good as far as I'm concerned. And Charlotte, that's an important point, isn't it? That um, in the UK, unlike in the US, where they've seen massive job losses already in, in many parts of the sectors, and, and fintech has had played a role in really helping uh, helping solve some of that. In the UK, because of the furloughed workers scheme, we, we may be looking at the job losses coming at us in October, November time, and how many fintechs, how many uh, small companies have furloughed staff that, that simply can't bring them back. It's We just don't know yet, do we? No, and you know, I'm hopeful across services, selfishly from a fintech sector, you know, I'm hopeful that you know, those jobs continue to grow as we see more of a demand for innovation in financial services, digital transformation, banks accelerating their own change and looking to the fintech sector for that innovation. You know, you've got to hope that that is going to protect those jobs and get them to grow. You, know, you look at some of the reg tech firms doing incredibly well as more people want to have their services, you know, as as more consumers change the way they interact with financial services and they're looking online for online solutions. You know, I've been told there's a statistic of 6 million people have on, uh, downloaded the banking app for the first time during the crisis. That's 12% of the working adult population in the UK. So that will just show you the digital adoption we are going to see on the back of this crisis. 
as we look turn to SME financing coming out, you know, the crisis post civils and bounce back loans, are we going to see the banks provide that SME financing, or are we going to see what happened, you know, post two thousand and eight, where the marketplace lenders, the you know, peer to peer lenders, came in and filled that gap? And guess what? That's good for the fintech lenders as well. So I'm actually quite bullish, and you know, Sarah, I have to slightly disagree with you that if you're a US founder, I think it's pretty unlikely. You would turn around and go, please don't give me the money. I don't want to grow. Can you go and give it to one of my smaller you know, competitors? You know, Let's be ambitious. Let's go and sit there and help our company scale. The one big problem we have in the UK is that patient capital is helping to export. And you know, and it's great that jobs are being created. But you know, like the Chancellor said, we're not going to save every company across the country. And we're probably not going to, you know, not every fintech company is going to survive. And some of that will be a matter of luck, of timing, of your particular subsector, you know, and you know, and the demand from consumers and businesses. And most importantly, have you been able to pivot during the crisis and respond to this crisis with potential expansion of products or a honing down of something that's working really well? Indeed. And I think, Victor, um, the, it's not all bad for fintech, right? I mean, I think I imagine in your own business that the people in savings and investments, I'm hearing very bullish things from from that segment of the market so is, is that more aligned to what you're seeing it, it's not all bad news in the market no yeah definitely so basically all our important indicators went uh, went to the shape of a hockey stick uh, so not 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 all the companies suffer uh, you know some businesses uh, uh, a number of them suffer and, and people as well. And, you know, uh, to be honest, just to react on uh, previous comments, the, the last thing I wish for anyone to lose their jobs in this environment, I, I do struggle to envision software engineers having difficulties uh, <laughs> finding finding opportunities, to be honest. So to, to be honest, uh, you know, just uh, based on what uh, Sarah and Charlotte both said, I actually agree with Sarah a little bit more that I think smaller companies may need a little bit more of a, more of a look by institutional investors, because well, one, um, they are riskier, right? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm a lover of crowdfunding. I, I, I'm a fan, right? And you know, it's, it's probably uh, well uh, chronicled on the internet. Uh, my, my uh, previous investments, uh, and you know, as, as, as long as you as a retail investor understand the risks, I think it's an amazing opportunity for us retail investors. That said, it, it needs institutionally investing uh, smaller companies as well. And I partially agree with what Charlotte said. We, I, I personally think that fintech gives us Europeans in, in Europe uh, an opportunity to build something like big tech is in the US. So finally, there is an opportunity to, big, to, to build big, meaningful companies. But at the same time, I, I think the focus should be on revenue generation, which I understand it is for big companies. Uh, and uh, I, I think that should be the focus. And I think it was a very safe kind of like route for institutional investors to take to invest in big companies, right? And, and you know, I don't blame them. Uh, you know, sometimes safety is nice, but uh, I, I think smaller companies deserve a, a, a look. And for some time, we we really differentiated on having that sort of a really well-developed early stage um, ecosystem for fintech in, in the UK. And, and then it was ex, uh, foreign capital that really helped scale that. And I think to Charlotte's point, we need to develop that ability to, to have patient capital that's domiciled here as well. So homegrown capital really moving uh, in, into, into, those com- into those companies. Um, I'm sure we could talk about this a lot, lot more, but uh, I'm pushed for time and I got to get to the next story. Um, this one comes from Yahoo. To finance and it was about Barclays profits in half uh, as it set aside 1.6 billion pounds to cover COVID-19 losses. I also saw earlier today, I think Lloyd's Banking Group uh, has set aside 2.4 billion for COVID-19 losses. Um, the provision announced alongside half-year results took total COVID-19 loss provisions at Barclays to 3.7 billion. And the CEO, Jess Staley, said this was much higher than the actual losses we realized in the economic crisis 10 years ago. However, these loss buffers uh, are, are being put in place uh, to absorb as much of the debt going unpaid. So Barclays said it would likely continue to set aside money to cover the future losses as the year progressed. These loss-absorbing buffers caused a slump in Barclays' half-year earnings. Income rose 8% um, compared to 2019, reaching $11.6 billion, but pre-tax pof- uh, profit dropped from $3 billion to $1.2 billion. Uh, so there's some significant numbers here coming out. Um, Sarah, I'm going to throw it to you first. It shouldn't surprise us that um, banks, I, I think, are facing into losses. But what are your thoughts when you see headlines like this? 
Yeah, I mean, there's no surprise at all that that this is that this is coming. I think um, the interesting thing is that obviously this is uh, you know money that's been set aside, so it's not necessarily been lost yet. As, you know, as far as I understand, it, it's what they think is coming based on their own projections. Um, my concern, I guess, I have two concerns with this. To go back to our previous point, I'm I'm coming across as the the, the consumer fighter here of on the side of the underdog, but um, I think that consumers are going to suffer. Um, and the small businesses are going to suffer as a result of this. Because if you look at it, Barclays, where they made money was on their investing arm. They made a lot of money on their investing arm. But on the consumer side of it, obviously, that's where where things were, were falling behind, and particularly on the small business side. I mean, I, I think we've already seen... Um, I think there'll be two problems. I think we've already seen interest rates go through the floor. So let's not even talk about interest rates on savings accounts anymore because it's it's not worth the, the airtime. Um, so, you know, that's going to that's gonna hit people. But then you've got, you know, the ability to actually get a loan, as as Charlotte mentioned, um, you know, whether you're a small business or perhaps if you're a large business, but I think particularly if you're a consumer or a small business, that's where Barclays are really going to pull back in and, and, and try and, you know, um, you know, try and pull some money back. And then I think the third thing is to go back, sorry to sound like a stuck record, to job losses. So again, we haven't seen the job losses that are coming from the banks. As we mentioned, they're really going to start in a couple of months when the furlough scheme is over. We've already seen Standard Chartered. In fact, today, when the day we're recording, Standard Chartered's UK arm said that they've restarted job cuts. And, you know, there's some interesting things around the job cuts because um, everybody paused them. Um, perhaps because they needed the people actually because their back-end processes were so shonky that they needed the people to do things manually because they were dealing with new things you know there's, there's that argument for it um, but you know obviously they now they're facing into losses now there's no government support I think it's quite clear they're going to restart those job losses I don't think any of them are going to try and you know recoup that what's interesting is that we're starting to see where banks are pulling people back in or creating new jobs um, so Westpac in Australia today announced that they were bringing in a thousand new call center employees partly to pull back from where they had people offshored before and they couldn't they you know, they basically need to minimize their exposure to something happening wherever those people are working in future. But it wasn't just they're bringing people back to work in call centers that we might think is a bit backwards. They were bringing some people back to work in call centers, but they were going to set them all up remotely. And half of them were going to be supporting the people who are actually answering the phone calls to develop new processes to make call centers more efficient. So um, I think I think I think the little guy is going to get hurt by this, but I would really like to see more banks taking a more innovative approach to how to deal with it rather than just slashing interest rates, stopping lending and cutting jobs. I love that point about uh, half of the staff being there to work with the people on the front lines to figure out more innovative approaches. Uh, having worked in large banks, and I'm sure some of you may have done as well, so often 80 to 90% of what a bank does is just keeping up with regulation. The remaining 10% of uh, strategic innovation is what whatever McKinsey or BCG said they should do and came from the strategy team. And it's usually well thought out, but it's, it's not necessarily ne- always guided by the problems that the customers are facing day to day and the, the, the pain that the support center uh, staff really feel. So if there's, a, if there's an opportunity to get back to that, that's, that's hugely exciting. Um, Victor, what are your thoughts on, on the, uh, the overall macro picture here? Well, uh, I mean, it's so interesting and so complex. So uh, in the next couple of months, a couple of things are going to come to a head, right? The uh, furlough scheme is going to uh, um, end, uh, uh, I'm actually not, not sure at which date, but it's going to end. Um, and uh, like Sora mentioned, um, you know, the little people are going, are going to be hurt, basically. And that's going to influence businesses that um, deal with them, that depend on them. And I think it's very sensible from Barclays and I think a couple of other banks as well to reserve some uh, cash to, um, uh, to cover their potential, potential losses. It's actually, you know, it's the opposite of, you know, what I mentioned previously in relation to software engineers. Some people are, are going to you know, um, struggle to find uh, new jobs. And I think there is such an inequality of skills uh, and how much leverage you get on your time, right? If you are an engineer, then, I mean, the world is your oyster or, you know, you have, um, you know, more modern skills, but uh, there needs to be more thought put into maybe how we think about the skills gap and how we want to ramp up. Uh, you know, large uh, swaths of people need to find new jobs and, uh this uh, best tech story, I'm, um, I, I'm going to look it up. It sounds very interesting. More innovative uh, jobs, more innovative processes. That's definitely the future. 
Absolutely. Like, what is the competitive advantage of a human? Really, it's around creativity, problem solving, empathy, and and yep. that's something that uh, these people have in spades. They've they've been doing this for many many years, and they really understand banking. But how do you how do you use that in a digital way? We, in the last fintech insider episode, episode four four eight, we had a number of folks from around the world. Uh, we had a digital only bank in the U.S. called Current. We had Santander, and we had a few other folks just really talking through. What does the branch do in the future? What do branch staff do if footfall is is just completely disintegrated from the branches? Uh, we've seen a few people talk about reusing it as localized hubs and uh, and much much more. But do banks start looking at their real estate? Will we just see more and more branch closures? And are we in this endless cycle of branches closing more digital? Some people get left behind and. Th- Banks have are in a position where potentially they've got quote unquote too many deposits that they can't that they don't know how to monetize other than retail lending or unless they've got an investment bank and they're they're facing some interesting strategic questions Charlotte I think as they they stare into it uh, as are banks uh, around the world in in the U S and elsewhere yeah I mean you're quite right as we've seen over the last few years you know banks disappearing from the high street and what the reaction that's been you know from consumers from businesses you know quite comfortable going online. And it's going to be slightly a race if that continues to the best customer service, you know, how quickly you can get onboarded, you know, the, the machine learning, the AI tools, you know, data analytics, et cetera. You know, so it's going to be best products, best services, best, best customer service, you know, best accessibility. Um, and as I mentioned, in these huge statistics of people downloading their apps, you know, if we look at the SME financing market, you know, approximately 30% um, of SME financing has moved to non-bank lending, you know, since the last crisis. And again, you know, people are not likely to walk into a, you know, into high street bank, you know, book your appointment with your bank manager. This is how you used to do it. You know, set up your business bank account, you know, wait a few weeks and then potentially apply for a loan. You know, that seems quite archaic now. During COVID, it definitely does. Um, So what that's, you know, what's this going to mean? Is this going to be the acceleration? But then it comes down to where's wholesale funding coming from? You know, where's the cost of capital going to come from? You know, the non-bank lending sector is incredibly strong, but it can't pick up every single piece of SME financing. And we have to be careful. We shouldn't expect it to do that unless we, you know, we address the cost of capital as well. Um, so this is this is very much the fintech's opportunity now to really show how it can help economic recovery. You know, but it's you know, it is important as you go into this furlough, you know, end of furlough, that we also help the consumers as well. You know, this could be a really, really tough few months, one year, two years. We don't know how long it's going to last. We've got the gig economy. Are those jobs going to come back anytime soon? You know, and we have to be responsible as well. You know, have people got enough savings? No, they haven't got enough savings. You know, and they may have saved money during this crisis, but you know, have to recognise that money may not be coming back anytime soon as well. Um, you know, and fintech has a role to play on that. So, you know, that we have to be careful for extending credit. Let's make sure we're also educating people on what that means. You know, if people are looking to refinance their debt, let's look at ways of using fintech to show them there's affordable credit now that they don't have to go back to pay their lender, for example. You know, and for businesses to show them the range of options they've got, whether that's bank, you know, whether it's a non-bank, you know, whether it's in the marketplace lender, or you're looking to raise capital through crowdfunding. You know, let's make sure we're really showing those options and being responsible. And it is the way we're going to succeed and come out of this crisis is by collaboration. It's a collaborative effort across the whole financial services ecosystem. I'm confident the fintech sector will, will shine and do really well out of that. But we have to make sure that we're around that same table, pulling the best brains, the best technology, the best innovation we have, you know, and helping the consumers and businesses you know, who are going to use it. Charlotte, I think you make a really good point that the B2B fintech space is often underspoken about. It's always um, big fintech brands versus the the incumbents, as it, as it were. Not uh, how these, uh, a lot of the suppliers to the fintechs could equally be suppliers to banks. And, and banks have a high cost of operating from systems that they've inherited or had to build on and digitize over certain years. But if you look at the stack of most challenger banks, there's a lot of suppliers in there that can equally be used by uh, uh, by, by a lot of the uh, the um, sort of uh, incumbents as well. And, and I guess that's what you're pointing at. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're continuing to see those partnerships. I mean, you know, the last two, three weeks, every day you wake up to another partnership that's being inked. And that's fintech to fintech. It's fintech to large financial services firm, to large asset manager. You know, we're seeing the insurance market. You know, their whole world is changing. You know, and InsureTech is no doubt going to really grow from this as well. Um, you know, so I am very, very bullish that partnerships will continue to, you know, to advance. But I love the fintech partnerships out there. You know, I love those ones that get announced. You know, this isn't just fintech trying to sell into big incumbent 
This is actually fintech to fintech in expanding out their products and services and doing that end-to-end offering and really utilizing the best of open banking that we have you know, and all the reg tech out there to say, let's make that consumer and business experience great. Um, but you know, there are banks out there, they want the services. Now is the time to go and promote your services. And if that's what you want to go and sell your, your product into a bank, now's the time they need it. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully banks procurement departments are not uh, sort of the looking like they used to 10 years ago for this and can be as, as modern as they need to be as well to, to take advantage of that. And I know uh, Tech Nation and, and HM Treasury have looked at doing a lot of stuff around that with the fintech charter. So there's, there's good work happening there. Uh, Sarah, I just want to throw it to you. We've only got a few minutes left on, on this story before I move on. But uh, do you have any final thoughts on with a global perspective or, or other thoughts that uh, we've not included so far? Yeah, no, I mean, I was just going to say to um, uh, to Charlotte's point that, you know, the, the big banks desperately scrabbling around looking for, oh, my goodness, we've had a real kick up the bum. What the hell do we do? Quick, somebody help us. And Onfido goes, we're here. We're ready for you. Well, you know, how can we help? Um, that, that's, a, that's possibly good news to come out of, of all the mess of the last few months. Um, I haven't seen much of a global perspective, to be honest, yet. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I, I know that some of the US banks have reported, but I have to admit to not having followed it um, in the last few weeks. Um, it's going to be interesting to see where's hardest hit. You know, for example, Deutsche Bank, we know, has, has gone back to making some cuts, but it wasn't in the best place to start with. So the German economy will be an interesting one to watch because Germany doesn't thus far, she says, fingers crossed, seem to have suffered in the way that we have here or perhaps the US has. Um, Australia will be another one, you know, for the first time I think ever, well not ever, but in the you know recent memory, they're actually facing a recession and they're not quite sure what this means or what to do with it because they haven't had one before or at least not that anybody remembers. So um, it'd be interesting to see what they do. But obviously the big banks down there are a lot further ahead than they are in a lot of the rest of the world. They've got a lot of things in place already that might make them better equipped to deal with this. Um, you know, outside of that, um, I really wouldn't like to say at this point, but I will be keeping an eye on it. Indeed. The US, of course, the US banks have put aside um, significant amounts of uh, capital as well for potential losses. And today, I think we saw that Q2, the US is reporting more than a 30% drop quarter on quarter in GDP, which is, uh, I think, uh, world leading, shall we say. Um, And on that sunny tome, uh, let's take a quick break. um, And we'll be back shortly after we tell you about our sponsors. Banking as a service is deconstructing the entire banking stack. It enables brands to embed finance much more easily and tailor financial products to specific customer needs, jobs, and problems. This is presenting new opportunities for specialized providers and offers banks extra revenue streams. Download our comprehensive no BS view of what banking as a service is and what it means for the entire industry. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service. Uh, bit.ly forward slash banking as a service and it's all in lowercase you can do that on your phone now if you're listening to this podcast you could just open up a browser and go to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service i'll stop now Alrighty, fintech insider listeners we need you uh, imagine the poster in your head if you can uh if you listen to the show whether it's your first episode or your 449th if you dip in and out we'd love to if you could just take a couple of minutes to give us your feedback, we want to make the show better and better for you. Tell us what you like, tell us what you don't, tell us what we can improve, um, because we make this podcast for you, our listeners, and we want to make it better. So please, please visit bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey, and uh, we'll stop spamming you with bit.ly links eventually, but this one is bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey. Shouldn't take more than five minutes to complete, and we really, really appreciate it. Okay, next story comes from Yahoo Finance, and this is inside Britain's pandemic-era amateur investment boom. Uh, I think it's not just in the UK. We're seeing this it's, uh, happening really on a global perspective. But uh, this story is about thousands of Brits who've joined trading and investment platforms since the COVID-19 pandemic began. Combination of market volatility, lockdown boredom, uh, financial interest has lured amateur investors into playing into the market, many for the first time. Free Trade said the app has seen customer numbers grow by 90% since the start of March, and the boom in retail investment is not just a UK phenomenon. The US amateur investors were actually blamed for an unusual spike in rent-a-car company Hertz share price in June. The car rental company stock rose more than 100%, despite the fact that it just declared bankruptcy, a process that should make its shares worthless. 
This is all leading to growing concerns about inexperienced investors playing the market, especially as financial literacy in, on the whole in the UK is partic- not particularly high. The average household has debts of over £9,000, and Free Trade uh, have said that they are building educational content directly into their app to try and combat this education piece. Victor, CMO, CMO of Free Trade, I guess you have thoughts here. Let's come to you first. Well, I certainly do, Simon. Um, yeah, it, it's a very interesting trend. Um, so basically, at the beginning of uh, March, uh, we are growing nicely. Uh, everything is, is great. But a couple of days later, um, the, the lockdown starts, the pandemic comes into like full force. And we see all our indicators going uh, basically the shape of a hockey stick. Um, so with that, um, and you know, that's across markets as well. So in the US, it's very well chronicled. There was a whole news, various news cycles of things happening there, um, how people invest and, and the implications of that, right? And uh, from our perspective, um, what we decided years ago, how we are going to build free trade, we decided not to offer CFDs or leverage uh, type of uh, products because we think the market is already a little bit overserved. Um, so I think there's a big difference how the platform taps into this trend, right? Because you can you can make a lot of money very quickly and churn through your customers if you optimize for that kind of for that kind of customer journey, uh, quickly acquiring customers, uh, burning them out with CFDs, which uh, were on average eighty percent uh, accounts about that figure uh, lose money. But what we what we decided to do is uh, is building a product that's suitable, well designed for long term fund cost averaging investing behavior, which we thought was underserved in the market right now. And um, yeah, what what we are seeing is that that design decision, that that philosophy made total sense. And now in twenty twenty, we we are seeing our our growth going up massively, and uh, you know we are not uh, not having the um, you know the the negative outcomes that um, a couple of other other platforms would have in the UK or or in the US as well, and we take our responsibility very very seriously. We we think we have a duty of care toward our customers. So you come in and you mentioned the example of Hertz. Um, side note: uh, the media likes blaming the retail investor these days. I, I would not overestimate the impact retail investors make on the on the stock prices or, or the volumes necessarily. Let's not forget the institutional players. But uh, regardless, we have, we have a duty of care to educate our customers. We always thought so. So basically, we, we, we have always diverted some of our resources, some of our time and money uh, to build out these resources. Um, so we have, uh, we have blog and content uh, that explains the basics. And those are linked from the app as well. So what is an ETF? What is a stock? diversification, all that sort of stuff. But we also set up a, a forum, a discussion forum, where the hope always was that eventually people are going to end up discussing different investing philosophies, in, investing schools, and kind of helping uh, each other out in the context of, you know, it's it has to be moderated, of course, so people should not chime in and say, oh, Tesla, bye, bye, bye. That, that's, that's not a kind of comment that we accept on the forum, but a thoughtful discussion where people exchange ideas, that's what... We think it's part of education as well. And building a community in, in that sense behind it's pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. I mean, Sarah, um, I, Victor was quite polite in, in alluding to um, to some problems in the US. <laughs> we know Robinhood have come into quite severe criticism and um, sort of uh, challenge from even the likes of the SEC, uh, who who have raised concerns about you know, sort of this trend of free trading in the US, um, which now even Schwab and many of the other traditional platforms offer. It, is there a risk that trading being quote unquote free in itself is a problem, or is it to to Victor's point not only trading being free, but then these really risky products with leverage, where you can end up significantly underwater without understanding what you're doing. Where would you say the balance is on that? I think there's a combination of problems. I think I think both factors play into it. I mean, I was speaking to um, a colleague of mine who's been working on on a project uh, about for one of these companies actually, um, not one of these companies, a company in the investment space, um, and uh, and she said that interestingly, CFDs you can buy in the UK, but they're illegal in the US, whereas in the US you can buy binary options, but they're illegal in the UK. So clearly, there is no global agreement on what is good or bad. And a little bit of digging made me realise that CFDs are banned in the US actually because it means that the banks lose out on money somewhere else to do with options trading, which I didn't, don't pretend to fully understand. But 
put it this way, they're not banned in the US because they're worried about retail investors um, at its bluntest point. I think the other problems with Robinhood about the, the free point are that people don't actually understand how how Robinhood makes money and Robinhood makes money off them making less money is basically it. I mean, there's, you can go and look this up. Um, they they uh, front run the trades. Yeah. Yeah. A much more eloquent ex- explanation of that. But um, so again, you know, you, you, it's not actually free. So there's a marketing question there as well. Like, you know, should Robinhood have to say up front, actually, if you do it another way, it could be cheaper. You know, we aren't the cheapest option. Does free have to have a caveat? Um, I do question whether leverage products should be available on these platforms. I just, I just don't necessarily think they should. Um, the one other thing that I would say is that I would, I'm not sure what, how practical this is. But it's an idea that only occurred to me in the last few weeks. But with open banking and with so many people using open banking, is there not a way that when you do the initial um, assessment of customers that come onto your platform and you sort of ask them about the risk appetite, do they understand investing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that you can actually take a good look at their finances and make a recommendation that says, actually, based on what we've looked at, we uh, either don't think you should invest because there are some people out there who haven't got a single penny of savings and are hugely in debt. So really, investing is not necessarily for you right now, or you should only invest up a certain amount. Or based yeah. on what we know about your finances, you're going to sit behind this gate and only be able to do X. Now, that may be too much control, but I just feel like there's some synergy there between, I hate the word synergy, please excuse me for using it, um, using open banking and the information you can pull on people's holistic financial picture to yeah. help them better, to educate them better, to help them make better decisions about investing. Because I don't uh, want a blanket ban, because that's not, sorry, I don't want a blanket ban on retail investors, because I don't think that's healthy either. I, I can feel Victor wanting to jump in on this, and I know Charlotte <laughs> will have points as well, and we've only a few minutes, but sorry. do you have some thoughts? Uh, yeah, no, certainly. And I, I mean, there are so many, so many um, important points there uh, from Sarah. I, I personally like open banking appropriateness test and all that sort of stuff that I, I think I think that will help, and that that's going that would scale potentially. Um, getting more knowledge, getting uh, getting more maybe more of a stir uh, in a positive way to uh, to customers. I think fundamentally, if you if you zoom out, the the problem that we have to solve as as, a, as an industry and 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 be free trade, that there is gigantic wealth creation going on in in the, in the world. Trillion dollar companies are getting created, and people are not caught into that growth. Right, that's the fundamental problem. Now, uh, if platforms, certain companies tap into that kind of like feel, because, you know, retail investors are correct. I mean, there's like so much wealth. I want to tap into that growth. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, some people having like a contrarian thesis that, oh, maybe Hertz is going to be picked up by an acquirer or something. I'm not saying it will. No one knows. Right. But it's fundamentally not uh, not not a, not a crazy idea to have. Right. And we should allow people to to make educated choices and give them really good uh, really good tools and and uh, and, and knowledge in, in the process uh, Victor I think you make a great point which is the financial inclusion and democratization of access to financial markets is a good thing I think Sarah's point is that with great user experience comes great responsibility and I think you, you take that point very seriously as I can tell and there's there's always opportunities to do more um, Charlotte I just want to pass to you um, before we move on from this story what are your thoughts as you reflect on this it is around financial education you, know, you used to go in you used to meet someone face to face it wasn't you know they would make a decision you know, didn't have open banking but they would make a decision based on your risk profile you told them about based on money in the bank so as we move online, you know, without sitting there and deciding which products are available to others, because to your point on financial inclusion, that is not the right way. You know, but we do have a responsibility. And that isn't just let's tick the box and you know, say, oh, I understood that, because people do that too, you know, too quickly. We are going to have to find that balance. You know, maybe it is that you put money up front, you know, and then you say, you know, I, I can afford to lose this. Um, you know, and I think proof of earnings, you know, we've we've got to be responsible to make sure that we don't lead people into products that they don't really understand what they're using. It's not products that they can't get access to, but we we have a responsibility. And I think there are some great platforms out there who are really doing so much work around financial education at the same yeah. time as this. And that's going to lead us to more products, more democratization of those products and services, but ensuring that we don't forget that there are people out there who have changed lifelong savings that they don't understand what they're putting at risk when they make those decisions. It's too quick to do it online. So it's it's finding that balance. 
I was speaking to um, an entrepreneur and, and founder of a challenger bank earlier today on the breakfast show who was saying you don't build a, a bank thinking about all of the people who might be vulnerable initially and you don't build it thinking about all of the w- things that could go wrong. You build it with a really positive intent. But unfortunately, with that comes the messy reality of people and humans who who have that stuff. And I think a lot of organizations do take that very seriously and are, and are learning lessons as, as they go through it. So long may that continue. And uh, if, if, it, if it matters to it, to anybody listening, I really do believe we'll see a lot more of the incumbent banks try and replicate either what free trade have done or from our next story, what, what Moneybox have done as well as, as a different route to market. So um, this this kind of illustrates not only just fintech investment products, but also um, crowdfunding. So Moneybox has crowdfunded more than four million pounds in two hours. They're an award-winning savings and investing app. Um, and on Crowdcube, they smashed to the 2020 record for the largest number of investors in a single campaign. More than 10,000 investors took part in the fundraise, which saw Moneybox reach its original target of a million pounds in 20 minutes. This follows a 30 million pound Series C funding uh, earlier in this month. And it, Moneybox, of course, if you're not familiar with it, offers a range of savings and investment products, and it enables customers to set money aside in a way that really suits them using things like roundups, regular deposits, one-off payments, and it really uses open banking and and card uh, information to sit on top of your everyday activity and just be almost that angel on your shoulder tapping you on the shoulder going, you could save that, go on, you could put that aside, which is a really interesting like finance coach model. So having recently reached the milestone of over a billion in assets, Moneybox is growing to uh, at an average of 100 million pounds per month in savings, which is really significant. Uh, and Moneybox users have an average balance of 2,273 pounds on the platform, and they're boasting customer growth of 121% year on year. Really quite significant stuff. Um, and they they seem to also be doing the hockey stick thing uh, that Victor mentioned. Uh, before uh, I guess talk about this, uh, we spoke to Ben Stanway, who's the co-founder of Moneybox. Let's hear from him now. Hi, I'm Ben Stanway, co-founder of Moneybox with Charlie Mortimer. We recently announced a £30 million Series C institutional fundraise and on Tuesday launched our first ever crowdfund campaign. We were keen to enable customers to both share in and shape our future success and are really happy with the response to the crowdfund so far. We raised £4 million from our customers in the first four hours and are now approaching the £7 million limit. With over 15,000 investors, Crowdcube tell us it's their second most popular crowdfunding campaign in their history. Moneybox is on a mission to help everyone save and invest for their future. Securing this funding enables us to continue to build the tools and technology that will help our customers with their four key savings missions. That's home buying, where we'll build on our position as the UK's leading lifetime ISA provider to help people with their end-to-end home buying journey. Retirement, where we'll make it even easier to combine all your old workplace pensions and plan for life after work. Investments, where we'll broaden our product range to cover all your investment needs. And savings, where we'll expand our network of partner banks to make it easy to access competitive interest rates all of the time. We're big fans of the 11FS podcast, so thanks for giving us the chance to share this news today. Oh, well, thank you, Ben. We're fans of you too. Um, Tell all your friends to subscribe. Um, Great to hear from Ben there. Um, Really, really interesting points here about uh, the home buying journey um, and sort of the thinking about retirement. There's uh, sort of going into the banking space, but they work with partner banks behind the scenes. This almost layer over the top of banking is is really interesting. There was talk three, four years ago of of, uh, sort of Will the banks be abstracted from from open banking? It sounds like that's almost um, starting to happen, Sarah. Jason always talks about this intelligent digital services layer that sits above the commodity financial products. This is thinking broader about the consumer perspective, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that um, we see a lot of these uh, products that started off doing, you know, one one thing well, expanding. Um, and it's interesting, particularly with with this company that's looking at savings and investments to talk about, you know, the key goals in the UK are home buying and, and retirement, you know, one's long term, one's longer term. Um, and I think it's really sort of savvy of them to try and, and build out around that. Because when Moneybox first came to market, I was quite sceptical, I'll be honest. I was like, if I'm rounding up my change, I should not be investing in. If that's all I've got, it is to sort of stick it in an investment account. That's not what I should be doing. I should be saving it and trying to find a way to make my money work better for me. Um, but as they build these services around it, it feels like they're actually trying to help people. Okay, so now you've got this pot, what are you going to do with it? Don't just go and buy that pair of shoes or don't just go and, you know, whatever. Um, actually think about it long term. And I think that really helps with the idea of like investments as a long term thing. Because to go back to the previous story, I think perhaps some people who get involved in the investment side of things aren't, aren't quite sure that it what to do with it or they get involved in kind of a thinking it's a quick win basis it's only some I know a lot of people do understand this but I think it's actually quite um quite sensible of money box for want of a better word to actually be be putting these things in front of people and saying look you've got into investing that's great you've got this habit that's great what are you going to do with it let's think long term and let's encourage you to think sensibly about investing um, and the best way to make your money work for you um, whatever that is you want to do you know start with home buying and then move on to retirement um, and, and I think I mean that as a, as a principle I'm, I'm I'm very fond of and if they can do that well if they can do it as kind of like a in a seamless way for want of a better word again struggle with my vocabulary this evening, um, spent too much time listening to Americans, I think, uh, then um, then kind of this extra layer on top of, you know, the banks still have their role. They still sit underneath. They still, you know, um, can do things like, as we were talking about earlier, acquire the capital that's needed perhaps to fund mortgage loans. You know, something like something like Moneybox comes along and sits on the top. They provide the customer interface. The customer is happy. The bank is happy. The fintech is happy. I think there is there is a role for that. It, it, it can be a virtuous circle and a partnership if done right. I think that's a, a compelling idea. And what I love about Moneybox is it's kind of moving towards that dream of self-driving money, uh, Charlotte, which is which has kind of been a term that's been thrown around for quite some time. But actually, if money is just being rounded up for you, if savings are just sort of happening in your everyday activity, and it's sort of in your long-term interests, you don't have to sort of put money in different jars and move all the money around yourself. This this is kind of an interesting trend to watch. Do you think this has um, been accelerated because of the pandemic and, and all, the, all the potential challenges we're, we're not seeing? You know, certainly as we as we move more to e-commerce, you know, this is a real opportunity to explode. I and mean, yeah, you talked about the jars. It does remind me when I was at university and I used to sort of sit there and put this money in and go, God, can I really afford to spend, you know, to save 10 pence a pound, whatever, um, you know, and I put it into that pot. And then what did I do with that pot? I left it in, in the wardrobe. In, and in the end, I went, oh, actually, you know, do you know what? I'm making some money now. I don't really need the pot of money. And at the time, it seemed like quite a lot. I've still got the pot I passed on to my daughter. I mean, it's not worth very much now. You know, so you have to make sure that money is working for you because otherwise there's a real risk that that pot just stays as cash. Um, anything you know, that can help young people understand the importance of investment, of savings, has got to be a good thing. You know, as we see more drive behind impact investing, you know, green finance, again, you know, this is something people are thinking of the, the social impact of how they put their investments in. You know, and I think that's really important that we sit there and show how money can work for you, but also the impact it can have as well. And I've been so encouraged by some of the stories I'm hearing of people looking at, you know, uh, of that impact their money is having and how it's going to have in the past in the future. Uh, absolutely. I've, it's every other day I see some new, uh, I think Ger Tomorrow Bank in Germany was one of the first, but, a, but a, a, a fintech or challenger bank dedicated really towards ethical finance. And uh, there was Climate Invest. Um, there's a really cool app called Kogo. And there are many others starting to emerge. And um, Victor, very briefly, because we're going to move on, I'm sure this is a trend you're seeing in the trading and investment space quite quite soon. Oh, this is a trend we are, we are absolutely seeing. So last year, uh, we saw something like a 35-fold increase in investment going into green energy companies and interestingly when we kind of like reverse engineer the data one of the big optics or some of the big optics were when it was like 45 degrees Celsius in Paris and, and all that sort of stuff it was in the news cycle constant reminder of where, where the world is heading and we implemented um, what we call collections on the discover screen on our, on our app and uh, for green energy companies specifically and it's our most popular collection by far so there is definitely a trend there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, what people often forget is 60% of all money in financial markets is owned by you and me, owned by retail. And actually, it's managed by somebody else who thinks they may be managing it in your interest to make a return. But your interests are actually to um, maybe have the planet continue to survive. And you are, when you're self-directing that, more in control of that. So uh, definitely going to be an interesting trend to watch. Um, the uh, Next major story this week comes from CNBC. This is about JP Morgan Chase, and they've partnered with Marketa, uh, one of the major bankers and service providers, to launch virtual credit cards. The new function will allow JP Morgan corporate cards to work in mobile wallets such as Apple Pay or Samsung Pay immediately without having to wait for a physical version in the mail. Sounds a little bit like what Apple Card does. As many Americans work from home during the pandemic, JPM's cards team hoped that it might also help those who don't have access to their offices or primary address where a corporate card might normally arrive. Plus, the pandemic has actually accelerated the adoption of digital payments and contactless payments. Uh, the feature will be available in early 2021 and only for commercial cards. Uh, JP Morgan has said, uh, not said if they have plans to expand ban that to the consumer side. Uh, just as a quick reminder as well, of course, Marketa provides the same technology for companies like DoorDash and Instacart, um, as well as many of the big name challenger banks in the US. Square also uses Marketa for virtual and physical debit cards launched through Square Cash and uh, for a plastic business debit card it unveiled in January 2019. So we spoke to Amiri Dahan, who's Chief Revenue Officer at Marketa, to get their perspective. Let's hear from him now. This is a really exciting new partnership for Marketa, where JP Morgan's commercial cards team will leverage our innovations around tokenization, which allow customers to instantly issue cards into digital wallets for immediate use. Marketa's technology will allow them to take the virtual cards they're already using for a range of commercial use cases and provision them immediately into a mobile wallet. This opens up huge new possibilities for companies looking to streamline payments and provide innovative services. Virtual cards, are a $200 billion annual industry, growing by 20% annually, and digital wallet use is exploding as well, which has been accelerated massively during the pandemic, of course. This partnership opens up some really creative new possibilities from disaster relief to corporate payables and disbursements. It's a real honor to be partnering with JP Morgan Chase. For them to look at Marquette's innovations and track record and see that we've proven ourselves at the sort of scale they do business at is a tremendous validation of Marquette's standing in the market. Charlotte, you were talking earlier about the the importance of partnerships um, between sort of fintechs and big banks, and you know Marquette has been on a real tear in fundraising and is apparently planning for its IPO. Um, but to partner with a major bank like J.P. Morgan, arguably you know, one of the biggest in the world, uh, this is going to be a really significant moment for fintech. What what are your thoughts on on this um, as a partnership and, and more broadly? Yeah, this is as you said. This is where we're going with partnerships. We're seeing big banks using fintech, etc. You know, I've got a virtual credit card with Revolut, so I'm not sure it's that big a story on that side of it. You know, but you know, being adopted across you know as such a bank as as J.P. Morgan and the scale and the size it has is quite incredible. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you look at the innovation in the U.S. and you know, we mentioned Apple cards and the fact that you know that's not contactless. You know, which seems a bit strange to us as, as Europeans. Um, that, you know, why would you not want to go to that sort of, you know, those sort of advances straight up? Um, but, you know, for me, this is just the start. You know, you're going to see these big partnerships come through. Why build it yourself when there's someone out there you can partner and get that to market straight away, especially during the crisis? And, you know, the amount of banks that are looking at this across the whole spectrum of innovation, um, it doesn't surprise me. I think we're going to see a, a lot more. Is that going to then lead to, you know, a wave of consolidation? You know, if we look back at tech days back at the end of the 90s, that's where it started. You know, you, you've, got to, you've got to believe that that's just the start of it. But exciting, you know, exciting for Marketa. I think it's exciting for the sector just to show the scale you know, and the opportunity for fintech to partner. Uh, banks moving away from their traditional vendor partner um, relationships towards towards newer ones is powerful, but also ones that are API first and to ones that are really part of the API economy. And that, that seems like a significant shift from, from such a big bank, Victor, when um, the whole B2B fintech space, you know, for some time was long sales cycle. Do you think Marketa is, is, is setting a trend here? Will we see more of this sort of partnerships? And, and what are the challenges if you're a big bank looking at something like this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was going to talk about the API because I think there's a significant aspect of this story. I actually did not know Marketo before, but just reading up a little bit like the TechCrunch article, 
uh, the the API is definitely uh, was a, I think I believe a significant aspect of this. And from our own experience at uh, at, uh, at our own company at Free Trade as well, it's just there, there are so many players in the financial services industry, right? And sometimes you have to connect to, to old players, which is always uh, well. It, it's a little bit of an absolute statement, but it's excru- sometimes excruciatingly painful. Whereas uh, when a company has an API, it's just like so much, so much easier, so much better. Uh, and being having clean, developer-friendly APIs is a significant competitive advantage in B two B at the moment. Uh, Sarah, do you think this essentially changes the expectation of um, who banks will buy from, or do you really think that the banks are going to rely on the, the the people they have for for quite some time? And this is this is really a bit of a flash in the pan moment. Um, is it a step change and part of a broader trend, or not? What do you think? Uh, I know. I I hope that it's. Um, part of a broader change, absolutely, because one of the problems that that B two B fintechs have had, particularly when trying to sell to larger banks, is this kind of horrible um, catch twenty two. They won't buy from you till you've got your first customer, but you can't get your first customer because nobody will buy from you. Um, you know, it's 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 very very hard to break that, and you do have to find somebody who's willing to. I mean. It isn't actually taking a risk, but they will perceive it as taking a risk on you or taking a chance on you. Um, so I think, particularly for Marketa, this is an amazing deal. And, and you know, they've they've got J.P. Morgan on board now, so you know, Bank of America maybe next. Who knows? Um, but you know, they, they've got that buy-in and they've got that kind of stamp of approval for, from J.P.M. Um, I think it just is an aside. I think it's really interesting that they've done this for corporate and not consumer cards first. I mean, I find the American banking, uh, the the American card system, very confusing. I don't understand why everything is still signed, and they haven't quite got their heads around technology at that aspect. But they've got huge leaps forwards in technology elsewhere. So I couldn't pretend to understand why they've gone corporate first rather than consumer. Except perhaps you know, in this country, we had virtual corporate cards a long time before we had virtual consumer cards. Maybe they're following the same pattern. Um, perhaps that's what they're doing. I don't. I don't fully understand that. Um, but yeah, as, as a as a as a broader a broader piece, I'm I'm hugely optimistic about what this means for for smaller B two B companies. Um, although you know, to, to Charlotte's point, perhaps this means we see, you know, once J P Morgan's gone for Marketo, maybe Bank of America goes for Marketo, maybe Wells Fargo goes for Marketo. Then what about the other players in that market? And and I genuinely believe that multiple suppliers and competition in the supplier market is just as important as competition in multiple uh, front ends. You know, consumer facing or business facing businesses. It's so interesting how many bank tech teams have spent so much money trying to digitize um, their their internal technology stacks. And don't get me wrong, there's some phenomenal talent that work inside the big banks. This is, um, you know, and, and they're dealing in very difficult circumstances, keeping old systems alive. But getting those clean, developer friendly APIs is is really something that's winning the the incumbent business. And I think for before this, people had really seen uh, sort of you could, sure you can win them fintechs with your newfangled APIs, but you know people want trust. They want big they want scale so they're always going to come to us and that's actually been questioned a little bit now and that's that's a little bit upsetting but maybe maybe the pandemic's a part of that um just charlotte you mentioned briefly um the you know, virtual cards are kind of normal to you now you use them in, in revolut um to, to sarah's point um is there a real major advantage to virtual cards is there a mini trend really emerging here because they've been around for quite some time but they're seemingly more and more popular of course monzo just released them in, in uh, part of their monzo plus is this a thing that we're going to see more of yeah, because why? Why do you actually need a piece of plastic anymore? You know, I mean, how many people now are using their phone to pay? You know, we moved to facial recognition. You know, we're actually going to you know physically not even going into into shops so much anymore either. We're spending online, so it's it's got to be the next trend. You know, and then there's the green you know the green piece that you know people are comfortable with actually having a piece of plastic when they don't need a piece of plastic or theft, etc. So I think you. Know, you know, when you look at it, I'm sure we're going to look back in 10 years' time and go, hold on, we carried around all those plastic cards in our wallets. You know, why did we do that? You know, that seems a bit strange. You know, when you, you literally just pay with Apple Pay or Amazon Pay and you scroll down which one you want to use. Um, so it, it's got to be the next place to go as we move more online, um, as we move more onto this. You know, the pandemic, again, is going to, you know, it's going to accelerate that. And I think you know, some of these things will be a thing of the past. There's a really cool company called privacy.com that is basically a repackaged version of virtual cards. And their whole idea is that um, you have a card for everything that you do online and it helps manage your privacy, but also it helps you manage your subscription. And people are starting to find that really usable and useful. Um, so it's going to be interesting to watch these things start to emerge, especially now as fintech feels like the hottest thing in tech period and feels almost mainstream. So I think there's never been a more exciting time to, to look at, especially the underlying infrastructure. Um, Victor, 
to one last point before we move to the next story. Yeah, just just a quick comment. Uh, I mean, my card expired recently. I uh, I had to replace it, and I had so many subscriptions, so many. There, there's definitely a, a point of saturation for for a lot of people, and I think having these virtual cards around and being able to manage those subscriptions better is, is definitely an advantage. Indeed, it's it's often those little things that really add up. Um, of course, if you're interested in the whole banking as a service space, do not forget that bit.ly forward slash banking as a service has a shiny report from 11FS that you can check out. All right, we're going to move on as we're getting towards the end of the show. We just wanted to round up some of the other stories from the week, but didn't have all of the time in the world to cover. There's just so much happening in fintech at the moment, um, but these stories deserved a shout out. So Sarah, do you want to start? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the first story we have in this section today is that TrueLink has raised $35 million for financial services helping vulnerable people. So TrueLink Financial is a US firm building financial tools. Um, It's raised that money in two Series B tranches. Uh, It's aimed at three groups typically underserved by by traditional financial providers. That's vulnerable older adults, people with disabilities, and those recovering from addiction. The company offers a payment card for vulnerable old adults who uh, TrueLink says are targeted by $36 billion of fraud every year. The technology can be used to block exploitation related to memory loss like scam charities, sweepstake entries and telemarketing and allows caregivers to make safe purchases on cardholders' behalf. Uh, another card for people in recovery can help reduce relapse temptation associated with carrying cash, um, can help enable budgeting and can help block, you know, liquor store or gambling purchases. Um, obviously, that's American, I would say, off license. Uh, meanwhile, investment advisory services are tailored to the needs of people um, depending on a fixed amount of resources for the remainder of their lifetime. So my opinion on this is basically, this is great. More of this, please. Thank you very much. I know we start to see um, it, it in the UK, uh, Starling um, in the midst of the pandemic announced their, I can't remember what it's called, a companion card or a partner card, but it was essentially a very similar idea. You ordered one um, and you could give it to your carer, perhaps if you couldn't go out or weren't able to make it to the shops. So um, more money for fintechs like this, please. There's an interesting trend of uh, ever more niche uh, fintechs emerging because the cost of the infrastructure to get a product like this to market because of these bankers and service providers is is lower, it's faster, cheaper than ever before, and you can kind of um, make this stuff happen. So we will we see more hyper niches and more big techs coming into the space? Already um, in a story we didn't have time to cover, Cabbage uh, has launched online checking accounts for small businesses. Uh, so online lender, Cabbage is moving deeper into business banking with the launch of a fee-free interest-bearing checking account. There are no opening fees or maintenance fees and no minimum or daily balance requirements. Instead, all customers will earn a 1.1% annual percentage yield, APY, paid out monthly. Cabbage president Catherine Petralia says, we believe in the businesses that are too often left out and underestimated. Cabbage checking is built to give those small businesses an upper hand to earn more, save more, and grow their business faster without sacrificing anything they expect from a bank. Cabbage is piggybacking off Green Dot's banking license to launch the new account. Yet more banking as a service stuff happening. Uh, Already, uh, Sarah, there's another one from the FCA here. Absolutely. So that this is the FCA has announced the firm's taking part in its sixth sandbox cohort. Um, 22 out of 68 applicants have been selected to join the sixth regulatory sandbox. Uh, for this cohort, the FCA specifically called out the areas in which it wanted to see more innovation. That included propositions that make finance work for everyone and that support the UK in the move to a greener economy. Uh, a selection of the companies that were successful include MyArmed Limited, a Sharia-compliant e-money platform with a donation calculation tool that will serve the Muslim community, um, High Pay UK, which will be partnering with Alipay uh, and WeChat Pay, so the two big Chinese giants and other payment institutions to provide a contact-free QR code payment solution for public transport across the UK. Um, fronted, so Fronted are, are friends of the show, a rental deposit cash advance to help people move. So Fronted uses open banking to make better lending decisions um, and reduce costs to UK consumers. And the final one that's listed here, obviously there are plenty more, um, is Climate Chain, uh, an app to encourage consumers to spend their money on sustainable products and services. Obviously, utilizing open banking to track users' spending habits, users will be rewarded with discounts at partner retailers for spending habits which are aligned to meeting net zero emissions targets. Um, My take on this one, again, is, you know, I I think it's amazing that we're at the sixth cohort for the FCA. Um, Some noise was made in the media about there being fewer applicants this time around and what did it mean and, oh, was it the end? 
end of fintech. Um, and, you know, my blunt response to that is I think people probably had things, other things on their mind at the moment. Uh, some people had, would have had more time to do it, you know, you know, perhaps that's great. Um, really pleased to see such a wide uh, variety of products and propositions in there. I think there's lots of space, particularly for, to go back to the previous point or my previous uh, story, um, propositions that serve the underserved. Just because they're niche doesn't mean they won't make you money. <laughs> here, here. Well said. Um, and, and I think good to see more action on climate using data and open banking as well. Maybe a trend we'll see more of. Our and finally story this week is one of my favorites in quite some time. So this is AntChain, a blockchain project under the Ant Financial Group, has hired a senior citizen's choir to perform a bespoke promo song. Of course, while dressed as ants. This was first brought to our attention by a tweet from Molly Lilly on Twitter, who has added English subtitles to the song. The video shows a mixed choir of men dressed in black and women dressed in white floor-length dresses, all sporting ants antennae, promoting blockchain and ant chain in particular to the tune of the lonely goat herd from The Sound of Music. Yes, really. AntChain is the renamed Ant blockchain product from Ant Financial, and along with AntChain's blockchain capabilities, lyrics include, young people do you know, get on blockchain, us boomers all know, you young fellas already got left behind by us. Um, And then there's a musical break in which everybody pretends to be ants. Uh, Do you know what? This song is annoyingly catchy. Uh, We'll have to find a way to host it or find you a link in the show notes or something. Um... And Financial not only has a blockchain project um, that's huge, this is like what happens if you take one part Christianity, one part North Korea, and two parts Eurovision. Like, it's the craziest thing that you just absolutely have to see. Uh, Any thoughts on this? I don't know if you uh, had any chance to see it, Sarah. I have not seen it. Um, I probably won't be watching it because I have one of those brains that just captures annoying earworms and I can't get them out of my head for months. So um, I probably won't be watching it. I, I, I think it's innovative um but i don't know how well it will work i don't think i'm their target market so i I, I couldn't dare suggest its potential success it's a little bit out of my expertise i would say this one charlotte thoughts um well i'm going to go watch it you know um i wouldn't i wouldn't underestimate anything that and do um you know so who, who are we to say that they've got it wrong on this one um and uh maybe that will be the christmas number one who knows Ooh. I mean, there's a company I could get behind. <laughs> it has blockchain and it has ants and it yeah. has finance. Best thing that could happen to fintech. Best thing that could happen. It, I mean, meant to happen. Victor? Yeah, I think fantastic piece of marketing by the sound of it. I actually have not seen it yet, but right after the show, I'm going to load it and see, see all uh, senior citizen choirs uh, from China perform and sing about the blockchain. That sounds fantastic. I just want to see the entire sound of music performed by senior citizens wearing ant costumes now to talking about blockchain. That's that's I think that's the only logical conclusion here. Well, well Simon, are, are, you, are you going to present the breakfast show in an ant costume? That's what we all want to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's a charity that could be involved in making that happen somewhere, somehow. <laughs> maybe, maybe, just maybe. Sarah, you were going to say? Oh, no, I was just going to say, were they paid? But I think they were. It says hired. Because otherwise, I'd say that's exploitation of senior citizens. But as long as they were paid for it, then... I'm fine. Oh no, it. they're playing along fantastically. <laughs> they they know they're involved in in humor. Bless them. It's it's really well done. Uh, already, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to our guests. Where can people find out more about you and what you do, Charlotte? Um, my Twitter handle at c crosswell or at infin i n n f i n for innovate finance. Thank you, Victor. There are two ways to reach me uh, on Twitter: v one eight n. That's my handle. Uh, or download the free trade app, uh, fund your account, and let the team know that you are looking for me. Then we can chat. <laughs> uh-huh. That sounds awesome. Uh, what about you, Sarah? I was going to say Victor might regret that. Um, I'm on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. And you can find me at SY Taylor on Twitter or find me on LinkedIn, Simon Taylor. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, do remember to subscribe and pass on the pod. Tell everybody that they should check it out. So just whoever you know just tell everyone that you know to check no i'm kidding um but speaking of making it better please do not forget to give us your thoughts on the super quick survey bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey as always if you want to join the conversation find us on social media at 11fs or fintech insider thank you so so much goodbye for now we'll see you soon